my spooky friends. Welcome to After the Ever, your podcast dedicated to all things paranormal and macabre. Hey everybody, hope everybody is doing well. It's September or September, that's what I like to call it around here. Spooky season is upon us. I am super excited. I actually started a new book. I'm pretty excited about it. Of course, I saw it on Instagram. Always those Instagram ads, they get me every single time. It's called Hidden Pictures. Of course, I don't have the book right in front of me. Hold on. Let's then pictures. Gosh dang it. Hold on. Pictures. Oh no. By Jason. What's the last name? I should have been more prepared. Gosh dang it. Book by Jason. Relic? Man. R-E-K-U-L-A-K. Hidden pictures. It's a novel for spooky season. I'm actually really into it. So that's kind of like my little update, if you want to call it that. All right, today's episode is an infamous one full of murder, macabre mayhem, and the paranormal. So grab your blanket, light your candles. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 5, The Amityville Horror Story. Standing curbside and looking up at 112 Ocean Avenue, you'll see a seemingly normal five-bedroom, three-and-a-half bathroom home, classic white shutters adorning the windows with white lace climbing up the side of the large home, a white sign that hangs out front and reads, High Hopes. At first glance, without knowing any history, you would not imagine that this home would become just the scene of a family slaughter. And then to acquire the notable name, the Amityville Horror House. Let's start this story at the very, very beginning. The DeFeo family was a family of six, all starting with Ronald Joseph, a.k.a. we'll be calling him Big Ronnie DeFeo, Sr., born November 16, 1930. And then Louise Bergnet, born on November 3, 1931. I think it's Brigante. I think I said that wrong. Sorry. After a brief courtship, Big Ronnie and Louise tied the knot on September 26, 1951. The two newlyweds would then welcome their first child, Ronald Joseph DeFeo Jr., nicknamed Butch, into the world. Now, growing up, Butch DeFeo had it pretty hard. Butch being the firstborn and a boy, his father had extremely high expectations of him. Big Ronnie had more of a, let's say, hands-on approach when it came to discipline for Butch. One moment, he would be hugging his son, but then when Big Ronnie deemed it necessary to punish young Butch, he would throw him across the room, hit him, hurt him, all kinds of things. It was pretty rough. But Butch was actually not the only child for too long. 
On July 29, 1956, Louise gave birth to a daughter, Dawn Teresa DeFeo. A few years later, on August 16, 61, Louise would give birth to Allison Louise DeFeo. And then the couple would welcome another son, Mark Gregory DeFeo, on September 4, 1962. Sometime after the birth of their youngest son, Mark, Louise decided to leave her husband for reasons that remain unclear. Distraught and desperate to get his wife back, Big Ronnie decided to use his writing talents and needing to express his love for his wife. He co-wrote a song called The Real Thing, and in 1963, jazz singer Joey Williams recorded the song for his first album called One is a Lonesome Number. Well, the song and dance worked so much so that on October 24, 1965, Louise gave Big Ronnie a third son, John Matthew DeFeo. All that being said, the family's Brooklyn apartment was now reaching its limits. So the DeFeo family moved to Long Island South Shore community of Amityville. The DeFeo residence was a large three-story Dutch colonial home built in 1925. New home, new life for Big Ronnie and his family of six. Life seemed to be going great, until it wasn't. In the early hours of November 13, 1974, the patrons of Henry's Bar, a tavern located at the corner of Merrick Road and Ocean Avenue in Amityville, carried on while sipping their beers and cocktails, a typical evening in the sleepy town of Amityville, calm and uneventful. By night's end, however, life in Amityville would never again be the same. At 6.30 p.m., Ronald DeFeo Jr., known by the locals as Butch, opened the door to the bar and yelled, You gotta help me. I think my mother and father are shot. One of the patrons at the bar was Bobby Kelsey. Kelsky, an out-of-work business mason and Butch's best friend. Bobby raced to his friend who had fallen to his knees on the tavern's floor, crying hysterically. Butch again pleaded for help. Bobby, you gotta help me. Somebody shot my mother and father. Butch got to his feet and called for the others at the bar to follow Bobby and him back to the house. So John, Joey, Al, and William, William was the owner of Henry's Bar, volunteer to follow them back to the house. Although the DeFeo's house was only a block away, Bobby drove frantically down the street, arriving at 112 Ocean Avenue in a matter of seconds. Butch's friend Bobby pulled the car to a quick halt and climbed out. As he climbed up the front porch steps, one of the men cautioned him, be careful, somebody might be in there. Bobby, not being deterred by the comment, pushed forward and unlocked the door to the DeFeo home. The house was quiet, except for the barking Shaggy, the DeFeo sheepdog, who was oddly tied up to the inside of the kitchen's back door. 
Later on, they say because the dog was not totally housebroken, the family routinely tied the animal up there. That's sad. The interior of the DeFeo home was just as impressive as the exterior. To the right of the marble-covered foyer was the dining room, the formal dining room, with red, velvet-textured wallpaper lining the walls. In the center of the room, over the Dutch-style table seating six, hung a crystal chandelier. A textbook belonging to one of Butch's younger siblings sat unopened on the table next to a bouquet of wilting roses. Across the foyer was the living room, which contained a baby grand piano. Lavish paintings and statues were scattered throughout the room. While Butch himself did not enter the home, Butch's friend Bobby Kelsky took the lead with four of the other men in tow hurried up the stairs to the second floor. Bobby, who was a regular visitor to the DeFeo household, knew exactly where the master bedroom was located. As they reached the second floor, they were overwhelmed with the stench of death. Bobby stopped at the doorway to the master bedroom and hit the light switch. The scene before him would show Ronald Joseph DeFeo Sr., age 43, A hole in the center of his bare back was the first indication that he was not sleeping. The dry blood had trickled out of the wound, disappearing beneath the man's blue boxer shorts. Next to him lay his wife, Louise DeFeo, age 42. But her wounds were not clearly seen because her body was buried beneath an orange blanket as if she were just protecting herself against the evening chill. Behind the bed was a mirrored wall, which eerily reflected the macabre scene before them. Seeing that Bobby was ready to pass out himself, the other men led him downstairs, past the life-size portraits of the family members that hung on the staircase wall. John Alturi remained on the second floor, and checked out the northeast bedroom. Upon entry, strung across the floor, were athletic shoes and toys, signaling to him that this was the bedroom of a young boy. Two young boys, to be exact. On opposite sides of the room lay the bodies of two young boys, face down like their parents. In in the bed on the left lay the body of Little John DeFeo, age nine, but Butch's friend Alturi could not pinpoint the wound since his sweater he was wearing was covered in blood. In the other bed across the room lay John's brother, Mark DeFeo, age 12. At the time, Alturi could not make out the wound, but it was a single bullet hole in the center of the boy's back. Seeing more than he wanted, Alturi left the room and rejoined the others on the ground floor. There, Joe called 911. Once on the emergency services arrived, it was an even more horrifying scene. As Allison, age 913, was found shot once in the face, 
Dawn, age 18, was also found shot in the back of the neck at close range. What an awful scene. That is horrific. I should have put a better, or I should have just put a trigger warning for this part. It was pretty gruesome. Yikes. After a lengthy trial that concluded right before Thanksgiving, Butch DeFeo was found guilty of killing his father, mother, two brothers, and two sisters on December 4, 1975. Justice Thomas Stark said the crimes were the most heinous he had ever seen and sentenced Butch to 25 years to life. No other suspect was ever prosecuted for the crime, so officially Butch DeFeo acted alone. Now you might ask yourself what motivated Butch to commit these horrendous crimes upon his family. During his trial, his attorney tried to mount an insanity defense. He claimed that DeFeo heard voices that told him his family was plotting against him. He claimed he was also possessed. At one point, he was even shown a picture of his mother and claimed he didn't know who she was. Then later, he claimed that killing them was in self-defense. When he first confessed to the murders, he admitted to getting rid of the evidence. So, there are a lot of stories. He did it. He didn't do it. He was possessed. He wasn't possessed. You guys will have to come to your own conclusions on that one. They say that Butch DeFeo also made sure on that day to call home in front of people that he knew and complained to everybody that he saw that day that his family was not answering the phone and that he didn't have the keys to get into his house. So that behavior all on its own shows some organization and planning. During the trial, the home on 112 Ocean Avenue was put up for sale and purchased by the Lutz family. On December 18, 1975, the Lutz family moved into the the DeFeo home, even though it had only been 13 months since the murders. The DeFeo slayings weren't something that would bother us. That's what the Lutz family said in a press conference after they had moved from the home. Father Manisco arrived to bless the family's new home on the same day they moved into it. While the Lutzes unloaded their rented moving van, the Catholic priest entered the house and began his ritual of blessing it alone. He made his way up to the second floor and entered that northeast bedroom, which had been Mark and John DeFeo's room. As he sprinkled holy water around the room and recited a prayer, he heard a loud male voice say, Get out. I would be like, All right, I'm out. Deuces. Although the priest supposedly did not tell the family about the voice, he did warn them about the room, saying, Don't use it as a bedroom. Don't let anyone sleep in there. And according to a good housekeeping article dated April 77, the Lutzes followed the priest's advice turning the room into a sewing room. From the very first night they moved in, 
Bullitt's family claimed they felt a strange presence. Now, author Jay Anson, I am going to refer back to this author a lot, so just keep up. Jay Anson, the author of The Amityville Horror, published in September of 77, wrote that the family's personalities had drastically changed. On one occasion in the book, the young couple beat their children with a strap and a large wooden spoon. After moving into the house, they said the children had apparently become brats. All right, not loving that. Reportedly, things worsened over the next few weeks for the Lutz family. From the stench of bile to the smell of cheap perfume, the family became increasingly confused by the mysterious odors that would emanate from different locations of the house. Black stains appeared on the toilets and couldn't be lifted with Clorox. Green slime ran down the walls, although there appeared to be no reason or source. Hundreds of flies appeared in the sewing room, despite it being the dead of winter. And if you all know paranormal, you know flies in the dead of winter is never a good sign. Author Jay Anson's crowning moment was the report of a crucifix in the Lux's home that was turned upside down. And this was just the tip of the Amityville haunting. According to Anson, the phenomena then turned physical. Kathy Lutz reports that she was victimized by unseen touches, which had sometimes even forced her to pass out. On the other hand, George would sit by the fireplace because he suffered from constant chills. In addition, he would wake up nightly at 3.15 a.m. You know, nothing good happens after 3 a.m. Reasoning that there was had to be a connection between 3.15 a.m. and then the hour the DeFeos were killed. But the time of death were never determined by the medical examiner. So that's just George's reasoning. As the month progressed, apparently the situation worsened again for the family. George awoke one night to witness his wife transform into a 90-year-old hag before his eyes. Then the next night, she began levitating off the bed, forcing her husband to grab her before she floated away. Realizing they needed help, the Lutz family contacted the same priest and asked him to return to perform another blessing. Let's just say the Catholic priest said, Respectfully, I'm going to have to decline that offer. After failing to get the priest to return, the family took matters into their own hands, and armed with a crucifix, they walked throughout the house reciting the Lord's Prayer. A chorus of voices then erupted in response, asking them, Will you stop? The most incredible part of the story was the claim that Lutz's daughter had befriended an invisible red-eyed pig named Jody. Now Jody could not be seen by anyone unless it wanted to. At times it was explained to be a little bigger than a teddy bear and then other times it was bigger than the house itself. George Lutz 
had reportedly told Jay Anson one night while coming back from the boathouse he had witnessed Jody behind his stepdaughter in her bedroom. Kathy Lutz's introduction to her daughter's friend was just as disturbing. On a separate evening, she started to see two eyes peering through the darkness, glowing red from a window in the kitchen. Now, the book also reports accounts that malevolent forces caused significant property damage to the house, such as the front door being ripped off its hinges, windows being smashed, banisters being torn from their fittings, damage to the garage door, and water damage from a hurricane that never happened. Even their dog, Harry, supposedly suffered from strange forces, becoming increasingly lethargic while he was in the house. One time, the dog had almost choked itself because it was trying to scale the back fence and leave the house. One of the more chilling events was when George awakened to the sound of a marching band in his living room. Yep, I said marching band. He claimed he raced down the stairs and entered the room only to find dead silence. And all of the furniture perched to one side of the room. 28 days after buying the DeFeo home, the Lutz family claimed they could take no more. They grabbed only a few belongings and fled the house, taking shelter at Kathy Lutz's mother's home in nearby Long Island. All right, guys, you're going to have to let me know what you think of this one. Do some research, pick up the book, watch some movies. Send me a DM on Instagram and let me know what you think. Was it possession? Was it insanity? Was it just a good story? What is it? Well, my spooky friends, that is all she wrote for today's episode. If you want to help support the podcast, please just subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast. Follow me on Instagram at After the Ever. DM me if you have any listener stories, suggestions, anything like that. And of course, I'll post all of the links to the show where I found all my research in the show notes below. Thank you all again for listening in today. Look out for the next episode. So until next time, stay spooky, my friends. And to the Wolfman. <laughs>